You're listening to The Firsts, The Forerunners of Islam, the series that visits those distinguished as leaders of humanity, not only in history, but in the ranks of the next world. Dive into the stories of the giants who were the first of their kind as they rose to the occasion and became preserved inspirations for generations to come. With your host, Sheikh Dr. Omar Suleiman, let's meet the firsts. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Adhubillah samir ayyman ash-shaytan wa bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wal-udwani ila ar-dhalameen. Wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen. Allahumma salli wa sallam mubarakan abdika wa rasulika Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. I want to welcome you all back to the firsts. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to join us with our beloved mothers and our beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the firdaus al-a'la. Allahumma ameen. Tonight, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to be covering the last of our mothers that we have a full lecture about, Maymuna bint al-Harith radiallahu ta'ala anha. And I actually wanted to say, subhanAllah, that I thought about whether or not I could do a whole lecture on her radiallahu ta'ala anha, or if it would have to be one of the first shorts, like we did with Zainab bint Khuzayma radiallahu ta'ala anha, because there isn't too much information on her. But I think that the value of her story, not just in who she was, but also in the seerah that we learn through her story. So if you think about the last few weeks as we've covered them, we learned seerah through the life of Zainab bin Jahsh, a critical moment in the revelation of the Qur'an. Obviously through Aisha, tons of seerah. Uh, through Hafsa, there were very specific seerah events that we went through. And then we went through Juwayriya and her story is inherently tied to the Ghazwa of Ben al-Mustaliq, the battle of Ben al-Mustaliq. And then last week, who did we cover? Just so I know you all are still awake. Safiya who is inherently tied to Khaybar, right? And tonight, inshaAllah ta'ala, we're going to be covering the story of Maymuna bint al-Harith and her story is inherently tied to Hudaybiyah the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the first entrance of the Prophet ﷺ to Mecca after many years uh, after escaping persecution ﷺ. So before we get to Maymuna bint al-Harith I wanted to actually talk about her tribe. And she comes from one of the most intriguing and interesting families in the entire seerah. And we covered the life of her sister through this lens as well. Her sister is Umm al-Fadl, Lubaba bint al-Harith, radiallahu anha. Lubaba is basically, you know, referred to as the mother of the companions. Why? Because Lubaba radiallahu anha is not just the immediate mother of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, but the amount of people that are related to this family from the companions of the Prophet sallallahu is tremendous. So I'm going to actually pull up a chart that we pulled up for Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anha instead of recreating it and talk a little bit about who Maymuna is in regards to the family that she comes from. So both Maymuna and Lubaba are daughters of a woman by the name of Hind bint Auf. And Hind bint Auf is known in the history books as Akram wa'ajuzan fil ard, the most noble elderly person in the history of the world, specifically from the women in regards to her in-laws. She's the only person to be the mother-in-law of the Prophet ﷺ twice. She also at some point is the mother-in-law of Abu Bakr, Ja'far, Ali, Hamza, and many other of the noble companions. Now, she doesn't live to see all of these in-laws, but in regards to who she's related to, she's known as the most noble woman in history by virtue of lineage. So when you talk about her in-laws, again, being the mother-in-law of the Prophet ﷺ through two different ways. So if you look at this chart, you'll see Hind bint Auf in the middle. And Hind bint Auf, there's a discrepancy in history whether she lived to see the Prophet or not, meaning whether she lived to see him as a messenger of Allah, whether she lived to see Islam or not. So some of the books will mention her as a Muslim. Others will say that she died before the advent of Islam. But this woman, Hind bint Auf, was married four times, at least four times, and she had at least nine children. Okay, and then you talk about the in-laws and the grandchildren. It gets very interesting. So this very neat chart that's easily understandable that we put together. 
uh, should put it all, inshallah ta'ala, in context for you. Her first husband, Al-Jazir Az-Zubaydi. And she has from him, Mahmiya. And Mahmiya is a companion of the Prophet sallallahu who passes away uh, after the Prophet sallallahu So not a very well-known companion, but one companion. Then after him, she marries Al-Harith ibn Hazm. Al-Harith is the father of Lubaba bint Al-Harith, who is the mother of Abdullah ibn Abbas. And she is known as the first woman to embrace Islam after Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. In fact, Lubaba radiallahu anha says, I embraced Islam on the same day as Khadija. First woman to embrace Islam after Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. Uh, is Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anha, the mother of Abdullah ibn Abbas. You have her sister, Maymuna bint al-Harith radiallahu anha, our mother who we're going to be speaking about today. And then you have uh, some uh, children that are not very well known, uh, that likely passed away before Islam. Then she marries after al-Harith ibn al-Hazm, Khuzayma ibn al-Harith al-Hilali. And from Khuzayma ibn al-Harith, she has one daughter named Zainab, Zainab bint Khuzayma, our mother, radiallahu ta'ala anha, who passed away six months after being married to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So she has another uh, daughter that marries the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as well. Then she marries after him, Umais. And Umais uh, is the father of Asma bint Umais, Asma bint Umais is the same woman who married Ja'far. Then when Ja'far was martyred, she married Abu Bakr. Then when Abu Bakr was martyred, she married Ali, subhanAllah. So that's one woman, and that's also her daughter. And then she has Salma bint Umais, who is the wife of Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with them. And Aoun ibn Umais, who dies in the battle of Al-Harra, who's also a Muslim radiallahu ta'ala anhu, ajma'in. And then when you continue all the way to the side, You'll see that there is a solid line between Al-Harith and Fakhita bint Amr radiallahu ta'ala anha. So these are the stepchildren of Hind bint Auf. Okay? Lubaba al-Sughra is the one who I want you to pay attention to because Lubaba al-Sughra was married to Al-Walid ibn Mughira and they had the child Khalid ibn Al-Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So basically the same woman Hind bint Auf was the mother-in-law of the Prophet Sallallahu twice. Abu Bakr, Hamza, Ja'far, Ali, and also, by extension, the grandmother-in-law of uh, Al-Hassan wal-Hussein, radiallahu ta'ala anhum, ajma'in. So she has a pretty amazing family tree. And I show you this, not because I expect any of you to remember a single word of it, but just to show you the way that these, that these uh, tribes used to marry together. Now this tribe is known as the tribe of Banu Hilal. If you ever hear the, uh, the, the attribution Al-Hilali, Banu Hilal, a very famous tribe amongst the Arabs, Banu Hilal are known as the in-laws of Banu Hashim. So Banu Hashim and Banu Hilal have many intermarriages. I'm giving you this to give you a little bit of context to the marriage of Maymuna to the Prophet Banu Hilal was a distant uh, tribe from Banu Hashim, but from the uh, overall uh, umbrella of Quraysh. And uh, till today, by the way, Banu Hilal, do we have any Moroccans here? Anyone from Maghrib? No one from Maghrib? Now we just made the masjid look really, really bad on our YouTube stream. We welcome all Moroccans here. The whole Ummah is Moroccan after the World Cup, right? Uh, much of Morocco are descendants of Banu Hilal. Much of Morocco are descendants of Banu Hilal. Uh, because if you read the history of Abu Zayd al-Hilali, about 300,000 of those who settled al-Maghrib are actually descendants of this one tribe of Banu Hilal. And some of the most famous uh, names, in fact, probably the most famous name uh, from North Africa is Umar al-Mukhtar al-Manifi al-Hilali. Umar al-Mukhtar, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and I say radiallahu anhu knowing he's not a companion, but we know how great he is in our history. And it's okay to say that about some of the mujaddideen, the revivers of our history is a descendant of, uh, of this tribe, Taqiyuddin, Muhammad Taqiyuddin al-Hilali, a great scholar, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy on him, also a descendant of this tribe. And again, entered under Abu Zayd al-Hilali. Uh, you know, uh, and by the way, you also have some of them in Andalusia, who then migrated over to al-Maghrib. 
as well as Al-Iraq. But anyway, a pretty big tribe, and they are the tribe that is married to Banu Hashim. The in-laws of Banu Hashim are Banu Hilal. They were primarily a nomadic tribe, and they were known for having a lot of skills, living in the desert and living out in the open. So they used to be a tribe that used to rear some of the warriors of Quraysh and prepare them for battle. Amongst them, of course, Khalid ibn al-Walid, radiallahu ta'ala, and who, who, we, who we will talk about in uh, some detail. Now, the Prophet ﷺ had a title for the sisters that we mentioned. He called them Al-Akhawat Al-Mu'minat, the believing sisters, Akhawat Al-Mu'minat. So if you hear the term Al-Akhawat Al-Mu'minat, the believing sisters, it is referring to the following. It's referring to Lubaba bint Al-Harith, Maymuna bint Al-Harith, Zainab bint Khuzayma, Asma' bint Umais, and Salma bint Umais. Lubaba, the mother of Abdullah ibn Abbas, Maymuna, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, Zainab bint Khuzayma, who died earlier, also was one of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, Asma' bint Umais, who was the wife of Ja'far, Abu Bakr, and Ali, and Salma bint Umais, who was the wife of Hamza, and then the wife of Shaddad. So these are the believing sisters in Islam, and you can go back and pause the stream and inshallah ta'ala you can look at that chart and you can memorize those names because they're all um, powerful women in Islam and from the early, uh, the early believers in the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So we said, Umm al-Fadl, Lubaba, used to pride herself in saying that I became Muslim the same day as Khadija. That she became Muslim immediately after Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha and Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma says, that my mother was openly declaring her Islam and always in Salah from the very beginning, meaning as long as I can remember her, from the very beginning of Islam. And of course, Ibn Abbas was not alive when the Prophet first received the message, but he remembered her as a Muslim throughout. And we know that her husband, Al-Abbas, uh, he was delayed in embracing the message of the Prophet So let's talk about Maymuna through the lens of the Sirah, through the lens of the biography of the Prophet The Treaty of Hudaybiyah is six years after Hijrah, six years after the Prophet and the companions from Mecca had left Mecca with a severely bitter taste in their mouths. They had not done Umrah for six years. They had not seen their homeland for six years. All they had done was withstand some of the major attacks that were being prepared from Mecca constantly over and over again from Badr to Uhud to Khandaq and everything in between, the skirmishes in between. The Prophet sees the dream of him entering into Mecca and he sees it as a bushra, he sees it as a glad tidings. We know that the Prophet and the companions make their way towards Mecca and they get stopped at Hudaybiyah, which is not that far from Mecca and there the proceedings take place where the Prophet ﷺ enters into the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Now we know that many of the companions were heartbroken that they couldn't do Umrah that year and that they had to wait an entire year to be able to do Umrah once again. And the very famous story that the Prophet ﷺ, when he, com when he commanded the companions to exit the Ihram, they did not move. And then Umm Salama radiallahu anha told the Prophet ﷺ, that if you go out and you shave your head and you sacrifice, that they will know that this is the end of this Umrah. This is also where Bay'atul Ridwan took place, the pledge of the companions under the tree who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said he was pleased with. And this is the year that Allah opened the doors of da'wah for the Prophet It was a fat'ah, it was a conquest, not through military means, but in that the treaty secured the ability of the Prophet ﷺ to call people to Islam within the region of Arabia and beyond without being threatened or hindered by any type of military force from Mecca. Seven years after Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ does what's known as the Umrah of Qala, the make-up Umrah of the Prophet ﷺ. And this is where the story of Maimuna is going to come in. And who can tell me what month in the seventh year after Hijrah, the Umrah of Al-Qadha, the makeup Umrah of the Prophet took place? I'll give you a clue. We're in it right now. 
Dilkarda. Good. So this month is basically the anniversary month. And in fact, we find that the Prophet وسلم, uh, made ihram for all four of his umrahs in the month of Dhul-Qa'da. And three of his umrahs were performed in this particular month preceding Dhul-Hijjah. So he comes Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in the seventh year after Hijrah with 2,000 of the companions. This was one of the happiest moments of the Prophet Sallallahu life. Can you imagine the joy of these people who had been run out of Mecca seven years ago and had not seen their homeland for seven years? And they left fleeing death, right? Including the Prophet ﷺ, he was pursued and threatened with assassination ﷺ, until the very moment. And you remember the Prophet's last moments when he's leaving Mecca, that the Prophet ﷺ turns around and he looks at Mecca and he cries. And he says, O Mecca, you are the most beloved of Allah's earth to me. And had your people not expelled me, I would have never left you. Rasulullah loved Mecca. And now seven years later, the Prophet gets to enter back in. And this is part of the treaty that was made with the people of Mecca. They had three days to do Umrah. Now, when they come in, they come in with a ton of joy. And Rasulullah is also not naive. And he knows that these people have broken treaties uh, before. So the Prophet ﷺ arrives at Mecca with 2,000. He leaves 200 of the 2,000 armed, but on the outskirts of Mecca. So they stay about eight miles away from the Haram. Why? Because that's obviously a means of protection to ward off an attack should they break the treaty and attack the Prophet ﷺ and the companions while they are doing Umrah. So they come to the Prophet ﷺ and they tell the Prophet ﷺ that we know you, Asadat al-Amin, the trustworthy and truthful ones never break a treaty. And you said that you would do Umrah unarmed. And the Prophet assured them that these men would stay on the outskirts of Mecca. They weren't going to perform Umrah while they had their weapons, right? That this was a safety precaution and that this wasn't breaking the treaty because they're staying on the outside of the Haram. So the Prophet enters with 1800 companions at one time. This was a place where the Prophet ﷺ had left with a hundred or so companions persecuted and now 1800 are entering and they're doing talbiyah out loud. And the agreement was that Quraysh had to go outside of the Haram to give them the Haram all to themselves. I want you to just kind of understand the atmosphere a bit. So Quraysh has to go to the hills and they're watching from the mountains and they're watching with a lot of anger. Why? Because the Muslims are coming forward and saying, لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ لَبَّيْكَ Right? That we associate no partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu is coordinating between the Meccans and between the Muslims. This gives you a little bit of uh, insight into why the Prophet wasallam said that we should uncover our shoulders and the Prophet ﷺ said that the first three rounds let the men walk fast because it was a display of strength, right? So the men come in until today almost marching, right? You're supposed to. Now, of course, you're, you're doing this <laughs> in place because you can't move very fast uh, when you're doing tawaf because of the amount of people. But the idea was that the Muslims came in and the Prophet ﷺ enjoined the men to walk very fast and to show strength as they chanted the talbiyah in the first three rounds of tawaf. And the Prophet ﷺ taught to run in the dip between, uh, in the sa'i. A lot of people wonder those two green lights. That is where there used to be a dip in the valley. So you were to show strength when you were going in and out of that place. I know that a lot of people think that's the only place Hajar ran. It actually has nothing to do with that. This is the place where the, the valley used to dip in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And so the men were to show that strength going in and coming out, rising from the valley in Sa'i. They then shaved their heads at Marwa and they sacrificed 60 camels. And the Prophet ﷺ, he goes to the outskirts and he in the 1800s stay behind and the 200 men leave behind their arms and they go and they do Umrah as well within that three-day period. So this is a really joyous occasion 
for the Prophet ﷺ and the companions. It's a dream come true, literally fulfilled. And the atmosphere is one of joy. And it's also a moment of da'wah in and of itself. Some of the Meccans are watching this and their hearts are being moved towards Islam because they are seeing in front of them the difference between the Muslim Umrah and the way that they were doing their pilgrimages with their idols, right? And so you'll start to see that in this incident, some of the people come to Islam just by witnessing the Prophet Sallallahu and his companions uh, in Umrah. Now, enter Maymuna bint Al-Harith radiallahu ta'ala anha. Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha's name was, who can tell me the name that's been changed the most times? Barra. Good, all right? Barra is the name that we've seen has been changed over and over and over again. As the Prophet said, Tuzakki nafsaha, this is a means of overly claiming purity. Barra means free from sin, right? Or free from any misdoing. So the Prophet forbade the name Barra. Her name was also Barra bint al-Harith, which was a common name amongst the Arabs. She had two husbands before the Prophet Her first husband was a name, a man by the name of Mas'ud ibn Amr al-Thaqafi. And Mas'ud ibn Amr al-Thaqafi divorced her before Islam. And then her second husband, uh, some of the narrations say a man by the name of Huwaytib, Huwaytib ibn Abdul Uzza, or, and it could be the same person, Abu Rahm, Abu Rahm ibn Abdul Uzza. Abu Rahm ibn Abdul Uzza. And Abu Rahm ibn Abdul Uzza was one who opposed the message of the Prophet ﷺ from the early days, and he died as a non-Muslim. So it's not clear when Maymuna anha accepted Islam, but at some point she accepted Islam. All right, at some point she accepted Islam, and the implication is that it was later than her sisters that she embraces Islam, but at some point she embraces Islam, probably because of the circumstances that she is in, being married to someone who is opposed to the Prophet ﷺ, in Mecca at that time. Now her situation now being divorced and now widowed two or three times and not particularly known for her beauty and not in a position of wealth and not in a position of power is that she's considered from the mustad'ifat. She's considered from the weak ones of Mecca. Why? Because she really doesn't have any major means of protection. The closest thing that she has to protection are her brother-in-laws, Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and Ja'far radiallahu ta'ala anhu, at some point, but of course Ja'far is not settled in Mecca, only Al-Abbas is settled in Mecca. And then interestingly enough, her nephew, Khalid ibn al-Walid. Her nephew is Khalid ibn al-Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Khalid is not a Muslim yet, and of course was one of the staunch opponents to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa following in the example of his father, who was one of the first to oppose Islam. But Khalid was very close to Maymuna. All right, and this is an important part of the story because it's impossible for us to capture in text how these marriages softened hearts and solidified certain alliances and maybe hastened the Islam of certain people. So she's someone who doesn't really have anyone to be by her side, to protect her. She's vulnerable. And again, she's not particularly sought after for marriage. So she has a very interesting story. She basically starts to tell her relatives that she's interested in being married to the Prophet And so she tells Ja'far Ja'far being her brother-in-law that she would wish to have nasab, she would wish to have a family tie to Banu Hashim the way her sisters did. She's Hilaliya. She's from Banu Hilal. And all of her sisters are Hilali as well. They're from Banu Hilal and they're all married to Hashemites. So it's her gentle way of saying to Ja'far, like, do you think the Prophet ﷺ would take interest in someone like me? I wish I could be related to Banu Hashim the way my sisters are. She also tells Umm al-Fadl, her sister Lubaba, that she's interested in the Prophet ﷺ with the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, marry me. And then finally, uh, Ja'far radiallahu ta'ala anhu goes to Al-Abbas radiallahu anhu and tells Al-Abbas that Maymuna is interested in the Prophet Sallallahu Of course, her name was Barwa bint al-Harith. And do you think the Prophet Sallallahu would marry her? And again, she's considered one of the Mustad'ifat, the weak ones of Mecca. She's in a very precarious situation being in Mecca without a husband and 
Allah knows if she's going to be married in that situation or not. So the Prophet is there for Umrah, right? The Umrah of Al-Qawa, and it's a joyous occasion. Al-Abbas goes to the Prophet So Al-Abbas would be who to her? I know you guys lost the family chart. How is Al-Abbas related to her? Someone tell me, please. Or else I'm going to repeat this whole lecture on you all. Brother-in-law. Lubaba is the oldest sister. She is the youngest sister, Lubaba to Maymuna. And basically, now Al-Abbas, her oldest brother-in-law, is going to come to the Prophet ﷺ, his nephew, and tell the Prophet ﷺ that Lubaba, I'm sorry, that uh, Barwa is interested in marriage. Now it's important to note that the Prophet ﷺ did not like to turn away anything from Al-Abbas Al-Abbas was someone who the Prophet ﷺ held near and dear to his heart and he did a lot for the Prophet ﷺ. So anytime Al-Abbas makes a request of the Prophet ﷺ, in general, that means the request is going to be uh, taken with great honor. So for example, it was Al-Abbas that came to the Prophet ﷺ and told the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Sufyan is a man who was very proud. So when you enter into Mecca, he basically gave the Prophet ﷺ the way that he could address Abu Sufyan to make him feel respected and honored to bring the hearts together. So Al-Abbas goes to the Prophet ﷺ and he tells him about his sister-in-law, Barra bint al-Harith, that she has been widowed once again by the death of Abu Rahm. She is alone and she's no longer sought after and he says to the Prophet ﷺ, Are you interested in marrying her, O Messenger of Allah? Would you marry her, O Messenger of Allah? And the Prophet ﷺ accepted that proposal. Okay, so the Prophet ﷺ, it appears that this message came to the Prophet ﷺ before he actually entered into Mecca or in the very beginning of his Umrah. Either he's meeting Al-Abbas, making the preparations of Umrah, or he's entered into Umrah and his uncle comes to him and basically says that she's proposing herself in marriage to you. Ya Rasulullah, would you take her as your wife? And she is the woman, according to multiple Mufassireen, Qatada and Az-Zuhri, uh, amongst others, that Allah Azza wa Jal is speaking about when he says, وَمْرَأَةً مُؤْمِنَةً إِنْ وَهَبَتْ نَفْسَهَا للنبي. So if you read this in the Qur'an, a believing woman who presents herself to the Prophet ﷺ. When you're looking at the wisdoms of the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to different women, in this situation, you have a woman that presents herself to the Prophet ﷺ and Allah praises her by virtue of calling her Mu'mina, as she's from Al-Akhawat, Al-Mu'minat, the believing sisters. So Ja'far is coming to her with the news that the Prophet ﷺ has accepted her proposal. She's waiting for the answer. She knows that her uncle has gone to speak to the Prophet ﷺ and she knows that Ja'far, and Ja'far is so beloved to the Prophet ﷺ, has gone to speak to the Prophet ﷺ. She's waiting on her camel from a distance to hear the news of whether or not the Prophet ﷺ has accepted her proposal. So Ja'far comes to her and she could tell from his coming that he had good news. And Ja'far says that the Prophet has accepted the proposal. She gets down from her camel in joy and she says, That the camel and that which is on the camel is for the Prophet. Like I want to even gift my camel to the Prophet because I have nothing else to express my joy that the Prophet would marry me. So this is the month of Dhul Qa'dah, seven years after Hijrah. And what year are we in Hijri right now? 14 what? 1444, good. So how many years does that make? I'm not making you all do math right now. I don't feel like doing math either. I just got off a of flight. But you get the point, okay. <laughs> so it's not, it, subhanAllah, it is, it is not that far removed from the death of the Prophet ﷺ, right? This is towards the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, towards the end of his mission. And the Prophet ﷺ accepts her proposal. And Ibn Abbas narrates that the Prophet ﷺ married her in Ihram. Which is why the longest portion of Maymunah's biography is the debate about whether the Prophet ﷺ married her in Ihram or not. Okay, because it's a serious fiqhi problem because we know that when you go to Umrah and Hajj, 
you can't get married when you're in a haram, right? And I used to laugh when I used to go through the rules, the restrictions in Umrah and Hajj, like, you know, you can't get married. And then someone actually tried to pull it off one year with me. And I was like, okay, now I actually have to drive home this point that, you know, it's haram to do a nikah while you're in a haram. You can't conduct the marriage while you're in a haram. So the scholars debated about whether or not the Prophet actually married her in a haram or not. And this is a long debate in, in the books of fiqh and Ibn Abd al-Barr uh, and Ibn al-Qayyim and Zad al-Ma'ad and others basically take the narrations from Abu Rafi' who was older than Ibn Abbas as well as her narration herself that the Prophet actually married her after he did tahallul. So after he left the state of Ihram, Abdullah ibn Abbas was young at the time. So when he's saying it, right, that is his perception. But Maimuna herself has a narration where she says that the Prophet married me after he got out of his Ihram, after his tahallul, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the Prophet had three days to do Umrah. And Rasulullah recognizes this as an opportunity, as he always does, to try to bring the hearts of the non-Muslims of Mecca to Islam, to try to mend ties. So the Prophet basically suggests, and, and this is according to some of the books of Sirah, that they delay his time in Mecca, and they do the wedding in Mecca, the Walima in Mecca, so that the non-Muslims of Mecca can attend the powerful ones of Quraysh and especially from Banu Hilal and this can be a moment of coming together. Instead, the Prophet was rejected and was told, we don't care for your walima, we want you out of Mecca, this has been enough of you, right? Three days was enough and this was obviously deeply hurtful to them, right? To see after trying to eliminate the Prophet all these years, the Muslims coming and doing talbiyah and performing their umrah. So the Prophet goes to a place which is known as Sarif. You're going to have to remember this place, inshallah ta'ala, because it's going to come back up in the story, inshallah ta'ala. Sarif is a place outside of the Haram. It's about 13 miles away from the Kaaba, from al Mazal al-Haram, 13 miles away, right on the road to Medina. Meaning when you drive in or out of Mecca to Medina, you're going to pass through Sarif inevitably. It's on the way to Medina regardless. So basically the idea is the Prophet chooses the place that's closest to the haram, but still not violating the treaty where he had three days وسلم, to perform the walima. And the Prophet وسلم, uh, performs the walima, the wedding over there. Some of the non-Muslim men and women still attended. And amongst those relatives who was not yet Muslim or who had just become Muslim was a Hilali man by the name of Khalid bin Walid so here's where it gets very interesting. And I know that almost every time we, we have a lecture of the first, there are comments, when are you going to do Khalid ibn Walid? When are you going to do Khalid ibn Walid? Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu was later on. So we have to respect the timeline that we're going by. But many people think Khalid ibn Walid radiallahu anhu became Muslim in Fatih Mecca. And that's not true. Khalid radiallahu anhu actually embraced Islam in this time period of the Qada Umrah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And this is derived by insinuation that some of the scholars mentioned that perhaps the Prophet is marrying Maymuna عنها, actually catalyzed somewhat the Islam of Khalid bin Walid. That Khalid عنه, was intelligent, he was already close to becoming Muslim, but the Prophet marrying Maymuna brought him even closer to Islam and perhaps was a part of his embracing Islam. But we know that Khalid عنه, embraced Islam in this incident or within this incident of the Qada Umrah, the makeup Umrah of the Prophet seven years after Hijrah. So they held a Walima in Sarif with the Muslims that came for Umrah. And obviously this added to the joy of the Muslims that came from uh, Al-Madinah to perform Umrah. And this was a means of softening the hearts, as we said, of those that were still left over in Mecca. Al-Abbas acted as the representative of Maymuna obviously being like her oldest uh, brother-in-law, as well as the uncle of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now her name was what? Please tell me what her name was. Darla. Good. All right. I know I just traumatized some of the Arab kids in here. Darla's like, get out, right? Darla is her name. SubhanAllah. As we said, it's very interesting. Juwaidiyah's name, Zainab's name. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ did not like that a person calls himself Barra, or he didn't like that they say Kharaja min Indi Barra. He left immunity or he left uh, purity when he would leave the home of Barra. And so he changed the name. But her name is a special name. 
okay? Her name is Maimuna, all right? Now, Maimuna has a very particular connotation, a very particular name. Does anyone know what the name Maimuna actually means? Any Maimunas in here, by the way? No Maimunas? We don't have Moroccans or Maimunas at Valley Ranch. Anyone know what the name Maimuna means? You think you know. You think, okay. Maimuna means Mubaraka, means blessed. Maimuna, a Mubaraka, blessed. And many of the scholars say the reason why the Prophet named her Maimuna is because her marriage coincides with the joy of the Prophet being able to enter Mecca for the first time in seven years. All right, so it's actually a name of Bushra, Maimuna, glad tidings, Baraka, that there's blessing in that marriage and blessing in her because it solidifies, it seals the joy of that incident of coming to Mecca for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So I have to shout out Maimuna bin Sheikh Muhammad al-Shanawi, Maimuna bin Sheikh Muhammad Faqih. And if I forgot any other Maimunas, may Allah bless all of the Maimunas. But those are the first two that come to uh, my mind. So it's a blessed name, Mubaraka, blessed. And it's one of joy and happiness and the Prophet Sallallahu uh, gave her that name in a way that suggests that it coincides with that. So the Prophet Sallallahu comes back to Medina and at this point, not only does Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha return with the Prophet but this is also around the time that Umm al-Fadr, al-Abbas, Abdullah ibn Abbas, the family of al-Abbas, all returned back to al-Madina with the Prophet around this time. And so they would spend three years with the Prophet the last three years of his life. And basically, this is where you have the legend of Abdullah ibn Abbas, a 10-year-old, up until 13, who's now going to spend the rest of those three years with the Prophet trying to get as much from the Prophet as he possibly can. Abdullah ibn Abbas riding behind the Prophet fetching the wudu of the Prophet shadowing the Prophet for three years comes as a result of this culmination of incidents. And one of the most famous narrations that we have is the narration of Abdullah ibn Abbas who basically plotted to sleep at his aunt's house on her night with the Prophet So Abdullah ibn Abbas said, I waited for the night of the Prophet with my aunt Khalti Maymuna. So he's related to the Prophet two ways, his cousin, but Maymuna is his khala. Maymuna is his aunt. He said, I waited until the night that the Prophet was going to spend the night with her and I asked my aunt, Khalti Maimuna, if I could spend the night with her on that particular night. So Maimuna asked the Prophet ﷺ if Abdullah could sleep with us that day. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, of course. Now, did they have a guest room in the Hujurat? Where are you going to put this kid? Right? I mean, the rooms of the Prophet ﷺ were so small that when he's doing Qiyam, he's tapping the legs of his wives, right? So where is he going to sleep? He's going to sleep with them. How? Abdullah ibn Abbas says, so the Prophet and Maimuna laid vertically, and he said, and I slept horizontally on the bed at their feet. So he's like, I was staring at the Prophet He's basically there to study the Prophet and the Prophet knows it. He says, وَقُلْتُ لِخَالَتِي Look, if the Prophet gets up and I'm sleeping, wake me up. Like I'm here to study his qiyam. His 10-year-old is here to study the qiyam of the Prophet So he's watching the Prophet and he's spending the night at the feet of Rasulullah and our mother, Maymuna anha. And then he narrates the beautiful qiyam of the Prophet how the Prophet got up, how he recited the last 10 ayat from Surah Ali Imran, the way he did his wudu, the way that he uh, prayed his night prayer, all of that comes as a result of Maymuna, radiallahu ta'ala anha, letting him spend the night when it was her night with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We also find that when Khalid ibn al-Walid, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, comes back to al-Madina as a Muslim, that many of his narrations, in fact, exist in the house of Maymuna, his aunt, his khala, with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he maintained that qaraba, that closeness with his aunt Maymuna, and with the Prophet Now what are some of her ahadith with the Prophet And by the way, before I mention anything further, 
You know, I, I, usually there is a narration about Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha that shows up here. You know, about Aisha radiallahu anha not liking someone. Aisha radiallahu anha seemed to have no problems whatsoever with Maimuna radiallahu ta'ala anha. In fact, I couldn't find a single narration of any of the wives of the Prophet I'm not liking Maimuna radiallahu anha. And there could be many reasons for that, right? Perhaps they're, they didn't feel threatened by her in any way because, again, she was considered from the mustad'ifat, from the weak people uh, of Mecca. But we only find a word of praise from Aisha radiallahu anha towards her and nothing else uh, when she married the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So what are some of her ahadith with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam? She narrates many of the ahadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in his qiyam, in his night prayer, as well as in his ghusl and in his wudu. How the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam used to do wudu, how he used to do ghusl, how he used to pray his qiyam. And so she narrates, for example, uh, in her closeness, كَانَ فِي حيال مصلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فربما وقع ثوبه علي وأنا على فراشي. She said that, you know, the Prophet ﷺ used to pray qiyam next to me while I was laying down in bed and he was so close to me that his thawb sometimes would fall on me while he was praying وسلم, and she mentioned that it was during, the, you know, during her period to basically reject some of the strict and rigid opinions of the Jewish tribes of Medina that had made it seem that the woman was impure at that time altogether. So she specifically mentions that that was that time and that the Prophet ﷺ embraced her, the Prophet ﷺ allowed himself to touch her while he was praying and that there was no sense of najasa, no sense of you know impurity that rubbed off on him in any way, uh, وسلم, so she was refuting some of the stricter rules of tahara that some of the people were implying also existed within Islam uh, once they moved to Al-Madinah. She describes the Salah of the Prophet ﷺ in great detail. So some of the most detailed descriptions. She says, for example, that كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا سجد جاف حتى يرى من, خلف من خلفه وضح ابطيه صلى الله عليه وسلم That when the Prophet ﷺ used to do sujood, that he would spread his hands in a way that I could see the, the whiteness of his armpit صلى الله عليه وسلم So we take that from her narrations رضي الله تعالى عنها she narrates many of the masail of women's tahara, of women's fiqh. She narrates the ghusl of the Prophet ﷺ in great detail. So obviously the only way that we could get the ghusl of the Prophet ﷺ is from those who were in his home wasallam. So she narrates his ghusl in great detail. And there's some of the most detailed narrations about him وسلم, in this regard. That I used to prepare the water for the Prophet ﷺ in his ghusl and I used to be his sitr, I used to screen him while he would do his ghusl and then she narrates how the Prophet ﷺ, uh, step by step would perform his ghusl. Uh, she narrates some of the masail, some of the questions in regards to the types of food uh, that are uh, permissible and the types that are not permissible. Uh, so there are some narrations from Al-Aliyah binti Subayya uh, that uh, I had some sheep at Uhud and they began to die. And I entered upon Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha and mentioned it to her. And Maymuna radiallahu anha said, if you would have taken their skins and made use of them, that would have been better for you. And I asked her, is that lawful? And she went on to narrate from the Prophet sallallahu that it was indeed lawful. She narrates some of the famous ahadith about Al-Madinah, the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu and his sujood sallallahu alayhi wasallam and his janazah, how he used to lead janazah. So the very famous hadith, Salatun fi masjidi hadha afdalu min alfi salatin fi ma siwahu min al-masajidi illa al-masjida al-ka'ba. In this narration, the Prophet says the masjid al-ka'ba. So the famous hadith that one salah in this masjid of mine, being the masjid of the Prophet is better than a thousand salahs outside of this masjid, except for al-masjid al-ka'ba, ay al-masjid al-haram in Mecca. And then she has another narration, which is a very interesting narration. Um, and it's narrated by Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. قَالَ أَخْبَرَتْنِي مَيْمُونَ أَنَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ أَصْبَحَ يَوْمًا وَاجِمًا That Maymuna, my aunt, told me that one day the Prophet woke up and he looked like he was struck with grief. فَقَالَتْ مَيْمُونَ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ لَقَدْ اسْتَنْكَرْتُ هَيْأَتَكَ مُنْذُ الْيَوْمِ that Maymuna said to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, I, you know, I, I, I see that your mood is very different today. Hey Atak, it's like, you know, Araka Thaqeelan, as they say in the Sharh, you look heavy, like you're burdened with something. 
I can tell that something is different about you. And by the way, some of the scholars of Shama'il say, you know, about describing the Prophet look at how much Ihsan the Prophet showed to his family, that if the Prophet was short in his greeting or did not have his typical smile, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that his family knew something was, was wrong with him. Like he entered with such joy into his home, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that even Aisha radiallahu anha in Haditha ifk in the slander, she said that the Prophet would only ask me, you know, how are you today? And he was short in asking, and she knew something was wrong. So this shows you the beauty of the Prophet when he entered into his home, that his hay'ah was off, his mood was off, and she recognized it right away. فَقَالَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِنَّ جِبْرِيلٍ كَانَ وَعَدَنِي أَنْ يَلْقَانِ اللَّيْلَ فَلَمْ يَلْقَانِ أَمَا وَاللَّهِ مَا أَخْلَفَنِي The Prophet said that Jibreel had promised me that he would meet me tonight, but he didn't show up at the time that he promised to meet me. So the Prophet was upset or was feeling distressed that Jibreel had not come to meet him. And the Prophet said that Jibreel never breaks his promises. Meaning if Jibreel tells me to be at a place, Jibreel will always be there at that place at that time. So she said, فَظَلَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ يَوْمَهُ ذَلِكَ عَلَى ذَلِكَ The Prophet spent the whole day down, distressed, in grief. And then, ثُمَّ وَقَعَ فِي نَفْسِهِ جِرْوُ كَلْبِ The Prophet as he was sitting, it occurred to him that there was a dog under the cot. So the Prophet ﷺ uh, commanded that the, the dog be out of the house and then the Prophet ﷺ washed that area. And then as soon as he did that, لَقِيَهُ جِبْرِيلَ السلام, Jibreel ﷺ came to him, فَقَالَ لَهُ قَدْ كُنْتَ وَعَدْتَنِي أَن تَلْقَانِ الْبَارِحَ The Prophet ﷺ said to Jibreel ﷺ, you had promised me that you would meet me yesterday, last night at this time. فَقَالَ جِبْرِيلَ أَجَلْ وَلَكِنَّ لَا نَدْخُلُ بَيْتًا فِيهِ كَلْبٌ وَلَا صُورًا So this is the very famous hadith that, yes, but we, the angels, do not enter a home that has a dog or a sculpture. In this situation, surah can mean, mean a, one of the prohibited means, not photography, one of the prohibited means of the imitation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation. So this is the hadith that we get it from, the story of Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha. Another beautiful incident that uh, you find from Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha is the Prophet on the day of Arafah. What do you do on the day of Arafah when you're not in Arafah? You all need to have some confidence in your answers. You got this. Fast, right? You fast on the day of Arafah. We're coming into the Hijjah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be amongst those who observe Arafah. Allahumma ameen. You fast on the day of Arafah, right? The Prophet did one Hajj with the Muslims after Islam. He gets to Arafah, it's burning hot, scorching heat, and they don't know if the Prophet is fasting or not because the Prophet immediately went into dua and Rasulullah had his hands up all day. So you could see his underarm and he never put his hands down. They are struggling in the heat because you couldn't worship like the Prophet and Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha she says, that some of the companions were fasting and they were getting exhausted on the day of Arafah. So they were watching the Prophet and they were falling apart on the day of Arafah. But no one had the nerve to go tap on the shoulder of the Prophet and say, Oh Prophet of Allah, are you fasting right now? So they just kind of assumed, we don't want to bother him in his dua, right? They just assumed that he was probably fasting. So Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha, look at the favor she does for the ummah, she caught it. So she says, I sent to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam a cup of milk. So the Prophet sallallahu as it was handed to him, he understood what was happening. So the Prophet sallallahu raised it in the sky, and then the Prophet sallallahu drank from it, and then all of the sahaba started to drink. Like they were waiting for that moment to see if the Prophet sallallahu was fasting or not fasting. So he didn't need to give a dars, he just had to drink some milk sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that would be the greatest got milk commercial of all time, right? All of the Sahaba started to drink water, started to drink whatever it is that they could find because they were burning. And look at the adab of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ with the Prophet ﷺ, even under that scorching heat on the day of Arafah. 
So she narrates, Allah some of these incidents, some of these moments with the Prophet almost all of them have to do with the concept of ibadah uh, in some capacity. And she narrates about 70 ahadith from the Prophet Okay, so it's not a huge number, but it is also significant in some of the important ahadith that we have in our tradition. After the death of the Prophet she's one of those who lived a very frugal life a very rough life, uh, and chose that for herself. And zuhud, asceticism, was the way of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ after they had been exposed to the Prophet ﷺ. And she, of course, was someone who was used to that lifestyle, even in Mecca. And there's a very interesting narration about her that she used to frequently have to resort to loans. Now, that's looked down upon, right? To take loans is looked down upon. And imagine you're the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, and she would frequently take qard hasana, but she would pay it back. But some of the companions didn't like that. So they told her that, Ya Umm al-Mu'mineen, oh our mother, it's not befitting that you would take loans, you know, at this rate. Takes a loan, she pays it back, takes a loan, she pays it back. She clearly was living almost her entire life on borrowed money. Radiallahu ta'ala anha, subhanAllah. This woman who has a home with the Prophet in Jannah. But this is what her life is like in dunya. She's living off of borrowed money. And she says, لا أترك الدين وقد سمعت خليلي صلى الله عليه وسلم. Just pause with this. She says, "I'm not going to leave off being in a state of debt when I heard my best friend صلى الله عليه وسلم خليلي صلى الله عليه وسلم." Right? خليلي is, is is an endearing way to refer to someone, and that's how she's referring to him صلى الله عليه وسلم. I heard خليلي, my close friend, say, "ما من أحد يدان دينا." فَعَلِمَ اللَّهَ أَنَّهُ يُرِيدُ قَضَاءَهُ إِلَّا أَدَّاهُ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ فِي الدُّنْيَا uh, This is an interesting hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said uh, that there is no one who takes a loan and Allah knows that he intends to pay it back except that Allah would facilitate him paying it back in this dunya. This hadith comes as, as a result of that context. What she means is that the Prophet ﷺ used to condemn people that intentionally went into debt and never had an intention to pay people back. And I think this is important for people to understand because some people are afraid so much of a dain of debt, which is important to try to not be in a state of debt frequent and often, but they might take some of those ahadith that are very, very harsh and condemning and scolding and apply them to themselves when they fully intend to pay back a debt. And the ahadith where the Prophet condemns the one who takes debts is the one who borrows money and knows that he's never going to pay it back and does not intend to pay it back at all. So she's saying that some of those ahadith that you're using against me have absolutely no bearing upon me. So she continues to live in a pretty humble status, not being someone that lives like a queen uh, after the death of the Prophet Now you also find from her عنها, that she was one of those who used to free slaves frequently. So she freed many slaves, something very beautiful, but it shows you ihsan, excellence. That when she would free a slave, she would make dua for them before she let them go. So it wasn't even just purchasing someone out of captivity and letting them go, but taking the time. Our mother would take the time to make dua for them as she would set them free. Uh, and she surrounded herself by students, primarily female students, and her family who would narrate on her behalf. And some of those narrations are from her freed slaves, and many of those that she freed went on to become scholars and hadith narrators. So you find that from those who narrated from her, Abdullah ibn Abbas anhuma, obviously, Abdullah ibn Shaddad, who was her nephew radiallahu anhu, uh, Ali ibn Sulayr, who was uh, a freed slave radiallahu ta'ala anha, and you find, you'll find often, Mawla Maymuna. You'll find it in the narrations, the freed slave of Maymuna narrating a hadith. So you find Abdurrahman ibn Yassar, Mawla Maymuna. Muslim, Ibn Ziyad, Mawla Maymuna. So you, you'll, you'll find this in the books of Hadith that so-and-so the freed slave of Maymuna, so-and-so the freed slave of Maymuna, so-and-so the freed slave of Maymuna. Which shows you something very beautiful, subhanAllah, about our tradition as a whole. In fact, one of the beautiful narrations that I saw was a freed slave of Maymuna narrating from a freed slave of Ibn Abbas. Umair, Mawla, Ibn Abbas. So this idea of people not just being freed from captivity, but going on to become scholars and narrators of this ummah as well and to lead the ummah in the greatest tradition, which is al-ilm, which is knowledge for this ummah. Now, after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, she used to do hajj every single year. So 
if you were to calculate that, that she probably has under her belt about 50 hajjahs. So she was one of those who used to love to go to al-hajj. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala facilitate for all of us. Hajjun mabrur, Allahumma ameen. And Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha used to call her al-mar'a al-taqiyya or al-mar'a al-saliha. The righteous woman, the pious woman. The righteous woman, the pious woman. I mean, that's high praise coming from as-siddiqa radiallahu ta'ala anha. Aisha radiallahu anha saying al-mar'a al-saliha. Al-Mar'a, At-Taqiyya, the pious woman, the righteous woman. And Aisha radiallahu anha has some of the highest praise for Maymuna when she says, كانت ميمونة من أتقانا وأوصلنا رضوحم That Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha, out of all of us, meaning the wise of the Prophet sallallahu was of the most pious and she was of the most regular in establishing the ties of family. Which gives you a little bit of context into the Banu Hilal and Banu Hashim, that Maymuna used to establish the ties of kinship. She used to establish the ties of kinship with her relatives, not just her closest relatives, but even her forest relatives. She would spend on them and she would take care of them. And that was part of her righteousness. Ibn Sa'id mentions there was, uh, you know, that her relatives used to frequently visit her, and one of her relatives once visited her, and he smelled like alcohol, like khamr. And uh, Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha did not allow him to enter near and said, go to the Muslims and purify yourself. And that was part of the ways that uh, her righteousness is being praised uh, in this regard, that while she was good to her relatives, she did not privilege her relatives to a part uh, or to a point in which she was transgressing uh, the, uh, the, the rules of Allah. Now, the most beautiful thing about her, so those of you that went to sleep in the last 20 minutes, this is the part where you wake up. She lives longer than all of the wives of the Prophet So she sees the death of all of the wives of the Prophet And she was settled for the most part in Mecca. Some of the scholars said because of the amount of Hajj and Umrah that she was doing, but she was in Mecca pretty much all the time. Now when she was in Mecca, and this is 60 plus years after Hijrah, 62 or 65 years after Hijrah, meaning she's outlived all of Fulafa al-Rashidin, outlived all of the wives of the Prophet she got sick. But then as she got sick, she said, أَخْبَرَنِي صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنَّنِي لَا أَمُوتُ That my husband, the Prophet told me that I'm not going to die in Mecca. So subhanAllah, what she ends up doing is she says, take me to Sarif. Where is Sarif? Someone remind me. Where she married the Prophet So she said, take me back to Sarif. So she goes to Sarif and they take her to the exact location of the greatest memory of her life. And she married the Prophet وسلم, 65 years prior to that moment. And that was still a place that she was tied to. SubhanAllah, you talk about like the Prophet entering into a person's life. And she remembered that beautiful moment where the Prophet married her. And she said, take me back to Sarif. They took her to Sarif. And she dies in the same place that she married the Prophet And SubhanAllah, this is a, a very powerful story because Maimuna did not have the, the same prominence as some of the other wives of the Prophet On top of that, the generation that knew her had passed away. And so it was very common at that time for some of the younger people, the Tabi'een, to not know, you know someone in particular. And we find that Abdullah ibn Abbas he led her uh, janazah and while they were carrying her, he said, هَذِهِ Maimuna." This is Maymuna, this is your mom. SubhanAllah, like reminding the Ummah, this is Maymuna, this is your mom. إِذَا رَفَعْتُمْ جَنَازَتَهَا فَلَا تُزَعْزِعُوهَا وَلَا تُزَلْزِلُوهَا So when you carry her, don't be rough, don't shake her. Like, have some respect for this body that you are about to place into the ground. This is your mom, Maymuna. SubhanAllah. And Ibn Abbas عنهما, led her salah. Khalid, عنه, her nephew, 
uh, lowered her into the grave as well. So she was placed in the grave by Ibn Abbas and Khalid, and he led her salah. Yazid ibn al-Asam, he says, وَدَفَنَّاهَا فِي الظُّلَّةِ الَّتِي بَنَا بِهَا صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ فِيهَا We buried her in the exact place that the Prophet spent his wedding with her, the exact place of the tent. And I want you to actually put it up on the screen, inshaAllah ta'ala. Uh, this is the grave of our mother Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha. Now if you've been to Hajj or Umrah with me, I've taken you to this place. It's literally on the outskirts, it's, it's on the way to Medina. So if you go 13, about 13 miles outside of the Haram, when they let you, uh, there isn't even a parking lot. It's just kind of hustled, nestled right next to some apartment buildings. You know, on the way, there's like a grocery store next to it. Kids playing soccer. And they have like this abandoned uh, hate office. You know, the offices that, that will, you know, tell people not to come here, not to do this. So they have an office and like no one's even there most of the time. And I'm not saying you go there to make dua to her, to do anything that's, uh, of course, in opposition to the sunnah. But it's really profound and powerful because that place where she's buried is exactly where she was with the Prophet and it's a beautiful story for us to connect ourselves to as well with our mother So this is our mother Maymuna. May Allah be pleased with her. The last wife of the Prophet to die uh, in the year 62 after uh, Hijrah. She was in her 80s at that point, well into her 80s at that point. We don't have an exact age for her. May Allah subhanahu wa be pleased with her and be pleased with all of our mothers and join us with our beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahumma ameen. InshaAllah ta'ala, I'm going to go ahead and end it because we have Salatul Isha. So we'll go ahead and we'll make adhan. This podcast was brought to you by Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research. Dismantling doubts and nurturing conviction, one truth at a time. Tune in every week for the next episode. And don't forget to subscribe to this channel and share with friends. Until next time, this has been The Firsts, The Forerunners of Islam.